Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, she's been agitating for racial justice and change in the criminal justice system since she was a teenager in San Francisco's Fillmore District. And she's worked for that reform both in and outside the system. And as protest Royal America, we are thrilled to have Latifah Simon join us today. She's a BART board member, head of the Oakland-based racial justice-focused Akonati Foundation. She's even worked inside a DA's office. Latifah, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Super happy to be here today. Well, we are really happy to have you. Um, I have known you for a long time since you were in the DA's office here, but you've really worn a lot of hats over uh, the years, both in the sort of civil justice, racial justice, um, activist community and foundations, uh, helping start a reentry program under Kamala Harris as DA. And we thought that you would be a really good person to to help us take stock of what's happening right now in America and and where things need to go from here. Because I think that um, that's a big question on people's minds. What happens after the protest? Yeah. yeah. And I know you've been thinking about this. I wanted to start just by asking if you feel like this moment is different. We have had protests before. It is part of our history. Um, But does this feel like something is shifting? Well, you know, I think it's it's a great question. And really why I... I'm, I'm proud to be on the show and it's hopefully to uh, speak in solidarity to the organizers all over the country and frankly all over the world in the activists and protesters who you know have been in the streets for the last week but also for the past 400 years you know it's interesting because you know we talk about what what we have to think about beyond the protest but the uprising the protest, the revolt is as American as apple pie, although it may feel and look uncomfortable to some. You know, I learned in the third grade that the American seal that was designed by Franklin took a lexicon out of the the story of Exodus, which talked about the people rising up and fighting tyranny in the light of our Lord. So I just, you know, 
what you're seeing now is is not only very American, it is essentially um, what is required of a nation that deeply believes in democracy. So yeah, there's some policy steps that we can talk about that our folks who are in the streets and who have been working towards justice for years have been calling on. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to take those questions and from what I know, but again, there's so many others that know, that know more. Uh, but this moment, it, in fact, if, if we think about this last week and we think about the numbers, you know, some have said that in American history, this is the broadest in terms of numbers in the streets uprising in our history for civil rights and for uh, not just racial equality, but the call to humanize the black body and the black experience. And so while we're devastatingly sad and shocked of the images that we've seen, perhaps you're right, this is a turning point in the, in the not only the, the history, the now, but the future of this country. For and us Latifa, to what, Latifa, what sparked this, of course, uh, was, well, the incident, I think, in Central Park was some mm -hmm. kindling, but it was mm -hmm. really the, the killing of George Floyd uh, mm -hmm. as he was lying on the street with a cop's mm -hmm. knee on his neck. But, you know, it isn't just Minnesota. It's not just Georgia or Kentucky. There was a rally at City Hall in San Francisco this week, mm -hmm. and the MC was Felicity Jones, who mm -hmm. I'm sure, as you know, formed the group Justice for Mario Woods, who, yes. as people know, was shot, I think, 21 times by the SFPD right. uh, five years ago. This is not someone else's problem, right? That's right. I mean, you know, um, m many of us and your listeners have studied American history and you know, it was, it was actually Malcolm X that said, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I have your foot in my neck. So those folks who have experienced racial tyranny, we get up every day and we feel it. It's the blackness of our skin. We, we live race every day. Not only, you know, when, they're, when, when a black man is killed, but also the everyday acknowledgement that the state uses oftentimes law enforcement to be judge and jury and executioner. Um, it is an everyday experience for many folks. And while there are folks inside systems working on reform, um, um, I think many of us feel like, right, this tipping point now, there, there's no going back. Um, and in San Francisco, and actually, again, across the country, across the world, um, we're, we're bearing, um, I think what, you know, even our friends in South Africa uh, had to think about, you know, one, once mm -hmm. we get past this moment, what does true policy reform, acknowledgement and reconciliation look like? And for many, they are calling for a complete, complete shift in how we think about policing in this country. Um, and it's not just about training, right? And it's not just about hiring better people. It is about facing the fact um, that policing and law enforcement and corrections in this country um, have been riddled with anti-blackness in, in, in their policies and frame and shape um, since since the beginning. So it's a, we have we have an onion appeal and we have an opportunity to get it right. Yeah, I mean, Latifa, you know, this is a state where I think a lot of people have pride in the fact that it's so deeply blue, that it is more progressive than a lot of places in the nation. Um, but as Scott alluded to, we've had these same exact issues um, here. What conversations are you starting to have um, with people in power about what what real action needs to happen? Um, I, I know there's a lot of layers here and, and we can go through them. But yeah. but I, to me, it's like the biggest one feels it, when it comes to policing, just the power that that group has had politically um, and quite frankly, legally in terms of protecting them. 
Well, you know, I, I, again, I lift up, you know, some of the organizers last night who put together a very peaceful march in, in Oakland, where actually people not only gathered, they, they rejoiced in the possibility of this being a, 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 a shift. Um, sisters like Kat Brooks uh, and organizations like Oakland Rising and others, they, 10 organizations got together to make sure that actually we showed what we really wanted last night and it's a complete shift. But these groups, and I've been, I haven't been having, let me tell you, I've been a part of conversations. It's really the leaders on the ground that have been pushing for these conversations even before and during and after the tragedy in this moment. But that, you know, some of their demands are completely this, this, this reshift, but practically mayors hire police chiefs. Mayors must be accountable for their police chiefs. Police chiefs must commit not only to localized audits of police officers who refuse um, to look at people as human beings, um, you know, as they police them. Not all, but many. We have to audit and get those folks out of what could be um, an amazing opportunity to involve, you know, community policing and and safety. But it's really on these leaders to begin to get it right. I'm excited about, you know, I know the governor made a very inspiring um, set of remarks a few days ago, and I'm confident um, that our, hopefully our big city mayors, our big city chiefs will begin listening, not only to folks who've been working towards these reforms, but the mothers of these murdered men, right? Um, you know, can cities adopt ordinances similar to Minneapolis that made the terminating of officers who've you know been witnesses to excessive force um can we can we move and do what minnesota has done the reason why the the people who killed mario woods are are still working is because we actually in california and in our cities um for whatever reason um keep people who kill folks in uniform on the job well, um, let me let me ask you about that, because you say for whatever reason, and one of the very biggest reasons is the unions, the police unions, the contracts that they have, their ability, uh, the difficulty of getting a conviction uh, with a jury. You know, so how do you deal with that? I mean, the police chief in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, had once sued the department. Uh, so it, it seems like in, the, the, he's not the problem. It, it's something no, else. I, no, absolutely. But so here, here's, here's, you know, again, I, like I said, I wear many hats and I'm learning a lot of, a, a lot of truths um, with these hats that I wear. You're, we're going to have to have a complete sea change in the folks who lead our departments and who lead our unions to completely denounce racism. It's as simple as that. If you are consistent with the current status quo, where, uh, and again, growing up black in San Francisco, I have a many of stories of people that I love have been taken up to the hills by the Cow Palace and beat senseless um, for absolutely no infraction or crime by people who were sworn to protect them. I also have met ranking members of law enforcement who have dedicated their lives to transforming these systems. Um, and so the the reality, whether you're union or you're a chief or you're a mayor or you're our governor, um, the hope is, and then the question post this moment, what do we do? And as leaders of conscience, of leaders with high morale, um, how do we begin turning the tide of institutional racism? And we have to start um, by not accepting what we've done before, period, full stop. 
Latifa, you know, we mentioned that you did work in the DA's office here. Um, and, you know, we have in San Francisco, for example, a black mayor who grew up in the same neighborhood you did. Um, we see in Minneapolis that one of the police officers who looked on and is now being charged was a man of color. Can you talk about being inside the DA's office and like what what kind of culture sort of challenges did you confront? Do you have like a story about that? Because it does feel like the institutional racism you're talking about is often taken on by people who are being oppressed by it when they become part of the institution. Well, you know, here's here's my retort on it. Here's my thinking. You know, when I went to go, you know, work for the DA's office, um, it was the newly elected district attorney, Kamala Harris, asked me, do you want to stay outside with your bullhorn or do we want to do something inside here? Um, and you know, she called me every day for many weeks trying to convince me I was running the Young Women's <laughs> Freedom Center at the time. She's like, come on, let's do something. And, you know, my first day on the job, it took a lot of convincing uh, to create a reentry unit and to really focus on the war on drugs in that office and figure out how to... Uh, push for reforms for young people, especially young people involved in uh, the underground street economy. She showed me, I don't know, it was 60 pictures plus of, of DAs who had came before her. And then you see this picture of a black woman on the wall. And she said, you know, folks are gonna expect me to undo um, over 150 years of racism inside of the system. We're not going to be able to do it overnight, but we're gonna chip away at it. Um, in that time in the DA's office, creating a, a program where we push for the release and the dropping of charges and the sealing of arrest for mostly young black men who are arrested for selling crack, getting folks jobs and daycare and uh, moving them into education. Even within the office, um, venerable attorneys would laugh at our program. Uh, so it wasn't it, the, the district attorneys association and our local POA, they hated what we were doing. Um, and, and I saw the really that, that struggle of moving into an institution as an elected leader um, with this burden, this, this, this righteous burden of wanting to transform a system um, that was really created um, <laughs> for the exact opposite reason, right? Well, not, about, mm -hmm. not about transformation. So it was, it was tough, but I'm glad and I'm proud of the work that we did. And it was 20 years ago. Yeah, well, let me ask, yeah, let me ask you about uh, Kamala Harris's time as DA, because as you said, she came in with a lot of expectations, although she didn't really run as the liberal. She ran to the right of Terrence Hallinan, really, or to the middle, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and shortly after she is the DA, a cop is killed, and she declines, as she promised, not to seek the death penalty. And I'm wondering, you know, what is your sense? I don't know if you were there then, but, you know, the fact No, I that, wasn't there, but I remember a very, I, I, it was, it's, a, it's an opaque memory in my mind. What is your sense of that and how it affected the course of her, the rest of her time as DA and even as AG, where, as you know, she was criticized by the Black Caucus in the legislature mm -hmm. for not mm -hmm. being progressive enough on police shootings, use of force, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. I wasn't there... Uh, you know, when Officer Espinoza was murdered and when anybody is murdered, um, it, it's a deep loss. Um, it's, it's, it's an extreme deep loss. But I do remember, you know, being with the young women that I was working for who had been in systems. And I remember watching that funeral and I saw you know, police officers turn their back um, on the district attorney. There was so much hurt and pain um, in that room. And, you know, Watching her now, like I'll turn on MSNBC or CNN, and I, and I, rem and, and she has, you know, this this fury in her in this moment. 
and it reminds me of the conversation that I had with her. She was a mentor of mine, you know, when she decided to run for Senate. And she said, Latifah, you know, as a district attorney and even as the AG, you have to follow the law. And I, I, I need to write the laws. I need to re, we need to rewrite this course of history. And I, I get that, I, I feel that in my soul. Um, and even progressive DAs, you know, George Gascon, again, you know, wasn't able to prosecute the men who killed Mario Woods. Um, we have a, 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 a system that in its very bone marrow, um, I think it hurts officers and it hurts citizens, lay citizens. Uh, we, we have to create uh, a system of safety that, that really works for us all. And we can get there. But, you know, it is really, I, I keep telling folks in philanthropy and the folks that I'm working with, you know, in policy, we have to listen to the ground. You know, you have to listen to folks who have lived this stuff. Um, Zachary Norris of the Ella Baker Center recently wrote a book called We Keep Us Safe. And it talks about uh, really community preservation and thinking about when mental health crisis has happened, how we must think about um, not weaponizing uh, folks with mental illness. He's, he talks about um, how reentry, moving folks from prison back into community, how we must not weaponize uh, sort of that movement. Um, and how we have to take care of each other. Again, I'm not purporting that any of this is easy. Okay, not, none of it is easy. If it was easy, we, any, the, great, the greatest leaders would have done it. Um, but I'm also clear, I'm also clear, and as you know, after the country burned, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Act of 68 was passed. My hope is that, you know, every mayor, every police chief, heads of unions, uh, of course, the organizers and activists who have uh, shown a mirror to the American face um, and challenged our democracy. I, I have faith that we get it right. My role uh, in my day-to-day -day life outside of my elected role is I run a foundation that is focused on racial justice and we've been funding movement groups for 20 years to hold leaders to task. Um, and it's not just about justice, it's for us in funding these groups about racial justice. We understand that we can't get there until we acknowledge really, the, again, like a, the, the, the architecture of systems. We, we can get yeah. it right, but it's gonna take time and progress is not swift. All right, Latifah, we're gonna have to take a short break now. And when we return, we're gonna talk to you a little bit more about your life and how you ended up there. We're talking with civil rights leader Latifah Simon. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are continuing our conversation with Latifah Simon. She serves on the BART and California State University Boards of Directors, and she heads up the Oakland-based racial justice-focused Akonadi Foundation. And Latifah, we mentioned earlier you grew up in the Fillmore District. Um, mm-hmm. It was a rough time there, I believe. I think you grew up in public housing. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and like what um, what sort of led you on what ended up being a pretty remarkably accomplished path by the time you were like in your early 20s? Um, did you I mean, but you also talked about, you know, the challenges that you saw your community facing. Um, I don't know. Tell us about your childhood a little bit. Yeah, you know, it was actually when I was in my late teens that we ended up moving to the Banneker Homes, which is low-income housing in the Fillmore. But my early years, you know, I grew up in the Western Edition, you know, right by the Panhandle and a, a beautiful Victorian. I remember Black folks used to actually live in those Victorians. I lived on Fulton between Baker and Lyon. Um, you know, the 80s for many of us was a glorious time. And for many of us, not just in Fillmore, not just in Hunters Point or Sunnydale, but all around the country, in fact, we saw... Um, the proliferation of crack cocaine. We saw the proliferation of the drug war. We saw outside of our windows, mass incarceration begin to take holds. You know, the folks we were on big wheels with in skates, you know, we, we saw them being taken away on their stomachs in police cars. A very deep and, 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 and difficult time. My mother was a single mother. I am also um, a daughter to the late Mark Simon. The Simon family came here you know, in the 50s and my grandpa um, opened the, the Black, the first of many black nightclubs, jazz nightclubs in, in the city. Uh, my parents, mm-hmm. before they had us, you know, they were radicals and um, revolutionaries. My aunt was very active in the Black Panther Party, God rest her soul, was one of the, the, the core members of the Serve the People campaign that served black children lunches in West and East Oakland. And so we, um, poor people have a story in this country right because folks live in public housing or their communities have experienced the horrors of incarceration um there are remarkable people every inch of the way it is about who is given opportunity to tell those stories it is about who gets an opportunity to do the work full time you know we those of us who have been activist organizers now in philanthropy and government our job is to tell those stories every day to make them real for folks and to humanize the experience uh, so, uh, I mean, again, I went to George Washington High School. I didn't do great in school. That's the school with the TV. mural, isn't it? The school with the controversial mural. Yeah, actually, that, <laughs> yes. that mural. We, we we hate it. I hate that mural to this day. <laughs> I, for a lot, a lot, a lot of the folks who love it, I'm like, you didn't go walk up those stairs and see black people picking cotton every morning. But yeah, I went to George Washington High School, got a great education, even though I struggled. I wasn't the best kid. I was in the juvenile justice system for parts of my teenage years. I had a baby at 19. She's off to law school in a few weeks. Um, well, let me, so, I want to ask you yeah. though, because I mean, that's, you have an amazing story. We could easily have you on and just talk about your, you know, your life, not just the politics and everything else that's going on. But how did you get from, you know, the, the troubled neighborhood and the difficulties you were having in school to ending up at the Center for Young Women's Development at age 15 and becoming the executive director just a few years later. 
Yeah, you know, I, there's a woman who, there's two women and a connection, a, a crew of women who helped to establish the center in the early days. Uh, Rachel Pfeffer was the executive founding executive director. There was a Native American woman named Black Star, um, and they came together. And there was a small grant that we got. They got then from the Women's Foundation of California to hire girls who were in trouble, um, and with the goal and intent of creating an organization like a Highlander school of, uh, for girls on the streets and girls in the juvenile justice system and girls uh, like myself who are just having a really hard time. And I thought it was, and it still is amazing that there is a place for young women to develop their power. The Young Women's Freedom Center is still active in San Francisco. In fact, they're, you know, they have chapters all over the state. And I'm so happy that I got at 17, 16, 17, an opportunity actually to push back on you know the the dichotomy of the good and bad neighborhood or the good or bad experience and understand that we all have so much to 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 give to this thing called democracy you know there's five about you know 500 women that have gone through that space just as employees in the last 20 something years mm -hmm. and our lives were all transformed so what a blessing and we need not to just support young people in their pathology but in their hopes and their dreams and we should say they're now called the Young Women's Freedom Center. They're still around. They're doing um, amazing work. I actually was just there a couple months ago. Um, so you mentioned that you had your older daughter, Amina, at 19. Um, and, you know, at the top, we talked a lot about police brutality against men of color. But I can imagine being a young black single mom, um, you probably experienced some of the things that black women are, are are out in the streets protesting about now can you tell us a little bit about that and how, how do you think you know being a black woman you experienced the 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 institutional problems we're talking about at that well age. you know i um i'm i'm so proud to be learning from actually black women young black women and trans leaders all over the country and non-gender conforming folks, because they're actually teaching me. I, now I'm 43 and I feel really old. Um, black women were the center of the civil rights movement. We shouldn't forget about that. You know, Black women were the founders of the movement for black lives, black women and trans women. Um, you know, freedom isn't free and it is not swift, you know, and we learn from Constance Baker Motley. We learn from Ella Baker, who Ella Baker was very clear you know, in, 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 her, in her cautionary tale to us, until the killing of black mother sons is as important as the killing of white men, white mother sons. She said, we who believe in freedom shall not rest. And for many of us, that is our scripture, right? That is our ministry. Um, and, and, and justice looks like something and feels like something that we've never seen before. And, you know, these brave young women who literally are leading in the streets across the country um, they're teaching us that um, the lessons from the past are lessons, but there's new lessons and there, you know, there's a new syllabus out there. And I'm a student of that. Um, and for my daughter, you know, I, I, I can't wait till she comes out of law school sort of to, to fit, defend these promises that were made to us by our very birthright. And, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about sounds rhetorical, but it is the experience that so many of us have and so many of us who've come to this nation, whether it's in chains or by boat or by plane, have that we deserve liberty. And it's thank God many of us have the, that's our job to seek that liberty. Hmm. I want to ask you about your your husband, uh, journalist uh, Kevin Weston. Uh, you called yes. him the man I'd been praying for in 2012. Oh. And, 
And when you married, uh, he was—I think you married at his bedside. He was—he uh, was yeah. fighting leukemia, and sadly, he died a couple years later. Uh, yeah. How did you, yeah. How did you deal with that? I mean, going from finding this guy you were finally that you'd been hoping to find, <laughs> and then he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, Kevin's, Kevin's sitting right next to me, I believe, right now. <laughs> Kevin died on Father's Day in 2014, mm. and he, wow. like you all, um, were journalists. I think that in, in your green room, you'll see on the right side of the chalkboard, it says Kevin Weston Rocks. I don't know who put mm -hmm. it there, but every time I'm mm. in there, I just, it gives me light. You know, Kevin was um, a writer, a storyteller, and his job was to hire young people to tell, really, their, their current stories and their wishes for hopes and freedom. And I was so lucky and blessed to find him. I actually met him in the district attorney's office. <laughs> he was doing a press conference about, <laughs> again, about black life. Um, there was a young black woman who, uh, remember this? She tragically threw her babies over. Uh, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah, I covered that. That was and, and, and the, so traumatic. And you were probably at that press conference where I met my husband. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was running the back on track program and snuck my way in and, and we met, um, I think, the gift that I have of, of Kevin's legacy is that stories need to be told. Um, and all the writers that he worked with and hired, they're still telling stories and they're still writing. I think that for, for me, the lesson in uh, being a caregiver, right, um, of someone who had terminal cancer is really every day when I think about the essential workers and the caregivers who still now you know, grace the reality that they have to go out there and love on folks to keep them alive and keep their dignity uh, while they're struggling. It just, you know, Brian Stephen tells us to be proximate. And I, you know, I, 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 I'm just so thankful that I had a community and I'm so thankful that we had health insurance. I'm so thankful that I had Kevin and his fight, you know, for his life. But what it, it has it continued to inspire me to listen because I thought I knew yeah. a little bit about everything before Kevin got sick. And watching someone <laughs> fight for their lives, you learn a lot. Well, he did leave you your younger daughter, Layla, who is, I know, um, an amazing girl as well. Um, we, we only have about 30 seconds, but how are you talking to her about all of this and, and bringing her into these conversations? Well, Layla, since she was you know, born, um, we've been talking to her about liberation and freedom. And she said when she was, we were watching the news, which we do every night and the, when the, the Floyd video came out, she was the one who said it, why can't they see us as being human? She's nine years old. And that's Kevin Weston's daughter, of course. Hmm. So I'm, I'm blessed to have her voice in my life as well because she, he speaks through her. All right, Latifa, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I Hope it was okay. <laughs> it was great. better than okay. Okay, okay. So, somebody's gonna hate me <laughs> after you air it. But uh, thank you so no, much good. for giving giving me the opportunity. It's a real honor. Thank you, Latifa. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. 
I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.